Der deutsche Spargelkult müsse enden. Germany's beleaguered defense minister has temporarily dropped his PhD. Volkswagen ist eine Perle der deutschen Industrie. Und ich glaube, das kann man nicht sagen. Ich weiß, wie viel Liebe dahinter steckt. Wenn Glühweinstände aufgebaut werden, wenn Waffen. Spargelweltmeister ist China, denn die bauen sich. Hey, it's Isaac here. Welcome back to Spaßbremse. What you're about to hear is part of an interview that Ted did with Jan Tattenberg, a historian who researches the German military and the far right. Ted and Jan discuss the clean Wehrmacht myth, or the myth that members of the German Wehrmacht were not complicit in the crimes and atrocities of the Holocaust during World War II. It's a really fascinating and enlightening conversation, and the two get into quite a bit of detail about why this myth just doesn't hold water. You'll hear about 45 minutes or so of Ted and Jan on this episode, but you can listen to the rest of their conversation over on our Patreon. They talk for about another hour and go into even further detail and talk about how the West German military was able to rebuild itself during the Cold War. If you'd like to listen to that, you can support us by going to patreon.com slash spaßbremse. But if you're not able to do that right now, you'll still have a really interesting conversation to look forward to here. And with that, on to Ted and Jan. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Spaßbremse. I'm joined here by Jan Tattenberg, who researches German history and recently got his PhD from the University of Oxford in contemporary German history and studies the German military and the far right. And that's exactly what we want to talk about today. So, Jan, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. And so obviously everybody's been talking a lot about the German military lately. Uh, you know, we've we've heard about the Zeitenwende, Germany rearming, Germany violating previous taboos and giving weapons to an active battlefield in Ukraine. Um, you know, Germany reaching the two percent NATO target. All of these, all these things that are sort of you know unprecedented. They're the they're these revolutionary policies that that Olaf Scholz has implemented as a result of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And you hear a lot of this this rhetoric, um, you know, various, the, the revolution, the venda, the, uh, the the unprecedented nature of German rearmament and how it's breaking from the past. And so to actually evaluate those claims and see if there's anything there or to what extent they're true, I thought it was really important to actually get into what is the actual history of the German military, especially from World War II to the present, uh, which taboos are being broken? Uh, how has the military culture of Germany changed? And in some ways, as we'll talk about, maybe uh, maybe not changed that much since the murderous years of the National Socialist regime and the actual Wehrmacht. And so to do that, uh, we brought on Jan, who this is uh, this is your bread and butter. So we're excited <laughs> to have you here. Thanks. Yeah, it it kind of it kind of is. My my big my big PhD claim was that uh, people essentially live a long time, and that things change maybe more slowly than than people imagine. So um, I think that that I think that's broadly true here as well. That's why they pay us historians the big bucks, you know, <laughs> to say people. Be <laughs> well, you know, it's um, <laughs> it's um, you you have some of these examples, right? So like um, Franz von Papen lived through the 1968 protests, right? Um, Ernst Jünger lived from what is it, eighteen ninety five to nineteen ninety eight, right? So I could have I could have met Ernst Jünger and remembered meeting him. Um, when we think of him very much as a kind of interwar period figure, and basically yes, people pay us the big bucks so that sometimes we tell them, did you know this person was still alive then? 
Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a blossoming field, right? That's why it keeps getting so much funding from people. <laughs> but anyway, to hear about to hear about who all these these characters are that that Jan name drops, um, stay tuned because today there, there's a few things. So we, I want to talk about how things how the history relates to the current politics. Of course, I think that's that's very important to kind of stay grounded in, in what we tend to do as a podcast. Um, but also there's some very, very important historical details and myths arising from that history that you really can't understand present German politics um, and foreign policy and military policy without. And so one of those that, that comes up a lot, uh, it's this thing called the clean Wehrmacht myth with regard to, you know, the Wehrmacht, uh, who I should, which I should clarify, I think is often um, mis- misunderstood or misrepresented. It means the entirety of the German armed forces during World War II, not just the army. So like the Luftwaffe and the Kriegsmarine are like part of the Wehrmacht. Uh, just just to be clear that it's not just the army. So Wehrmacht and Bundeswehr are not direct analogies, but that's that's just kind of a technicality. But I think it is important when you talk about the history of this and people say the clean Wehrmacht because they mean commanders of, of non-army units as well. So with that out of the way, what is the myth of the clean Wehrmacht? Was uh was there a clean break between the murderous SS and the the up, upstanding German soldier on the Eastern Front who didn't commit any war crimes? Is that is that an accurate thing to say? Yeah, I mean you you provided a really good introduction there, right? And um, even though even though the term Wehrmacht encompasses um, all services, broadly speaking, when people talk about the clean Wehrmacht myth, they do mean the land army for the very simple reason that the you know, overwhelming number of troops who fought Germany's wars um, were members of the, of the Land Army, of the Heer, right? Um, the Bundeswehr, there is, there is, is there a clean break between the Waffen-SS and the Wehrmacht? There is not, um, for the very simple reason that these forces fought together, right? So um, they... They fought together in various invasions. They fought together on the Eastern Front as well. And basically the idea of the clean Wehrmacht myth is the sense that the average German soldier fought bravely for his country and he did nothing wrong, right? He fought a war, he sacrificed um, whatever it might be, right? His life and limb for, for the homeland. And very often this is um, further depoliticized in the sense that People might argue that um, the average German soldier was just a soldier. He was not interested in Nazi ideology or racial hierarchies or whatever else. But it was in support of these right um, political projects that millions of German soldiers invaded um, vast parts of Europe. And the, the clearest example that we have of that lack of separation is the um, is the massacre of Babiyar. Um, which people might have heard about in the recent um, in the recent Russian invasion of Ukraine, because the Russians bombed the um, the site of the massacre. So it was basically where um, the Jews of Kiev were murdered. About thirty three thousand people were murdered there in late September nineteen forty one, and it was in close coordination between the Wehrmacht and the Waffen SS and the various other kind of paramilitary organizations um, that people were rounded up, deported, and then and then shot. Um, so I think that separation doesn't work on the one you know example but it also doesn't work more broadly so there's been long been this question of to what degree do Wehrmacht soldiers know right there's this often and this is something you will have heard in broader German political discourse to the sense that the average German didn't actually know about the concentration camps or the war of annihilation that was being waged in the east um, and yeah I think that's 
that's a huge mistake, right? It doesn't mean that every single German soldier committed genocide, but they were ultimately all part of a genocidal endeavor. Yeah, and we're talking here, I mean, to, to be clear, obviously, Bobby R is, is you know, a, a huge example of this. But broadly speaking, this refers mostly to the Eastern Front, Operation Barbarossa, and the invasion of the Soviet Union, where the war took on a completely different character. I mean, if people that have seen, you know, Saving Private Ryan or Band of Brothers or something like that of the, the war on the, the Western Front in Europe will be familiar with a very uh, sort of noble and like soldierly honorable kind of portrayal of the Wehrmacht. You know, there's that famous scene at the end of, of Band of Brothers uh, where they they um, the, the German commander addresses his troops and he gives this kind of like heartwarming speech. And there's an American soldier who speaks German and translates it. And it's like, I'm proud to have fought with all of you, your brave men who have sacrificed with your country. And he surrenders to the American commander like very honorably. And it's this like Everybody was just playing hard for their team. And, you know, you happen to be on the uh, world historical evil genocidal bad guy team. But, hey, that was your team. You know, everybody played hard. And that was that. And it's wrong even on the Western Front. But it's especially wrong. I mean, also, like, for one, like the actual conduct of the army and also the Wehrmacht helping the Nazi regime deport the Jewish populations, you know, also in Western European countries. But I think Americans, British, you know, other people more familiar with the Western Front, they're able to get that myth just a little bit more and find it a little bit more credible because the war was fought like qualitatively differently in West and East, right? And so there, there was a there was a war of extermination in the Soviet Union that there just simply wasn't in, say, France. And so could you talk a little bit more about, you know, really some of the the specifics here about like what the Wehrmacht was complicit in and why this idea of a clean Wehrmacht or a separation between the genocidal policies of the actual political leadership of the Nazi regime and the actual conduct of the sort of average German unit is it, trying to separate those becomes very silly very quickly. Yeah, so that's a really good point. Um, Unternehmen Barbarossa is the is the code name for the invasion of the Soviet Union, um, which happens in the summer of 1941. It is clear from the beginning and indeed from before the invasion starts that this is going to be a different kind of war. Um, Hitler has various meetings with the commanders in which he makes clear that this is the heart of um of the racial war. This is going to be different. Um, he convenes the senior commanders of the invading army groups and the various kind of highest echelons of the armed forces. And he says to them, this is going to be a war of annihilation. We are going to cleanse um, East Central Europe of really um, 30 to 50 million um, people. So the, the idea very much that is implicit in the war that begins is um, what is later called the hunger plan, which is the starvation of and removal of 30 to 50 million people from Eastern Europe. And the idea for that, of course, and this is where the war in the West and the war in the East are ideologically connected. The idea is that if they are going to fight the world war, if they're going to fight a war with the United States, they need territory and they need territory and kind of agricultural and industrial hinterland to sustain that that war effort. The famous term of Lebensraum, yeah. Yeah, that's that's right. And what they want to do in East Central Europe is they want to create that and they want to create it for white Germans and they want to do so by enslaving, starving, murdering millions and millions of people across East Central Europe. And so from the very face of it, the Wehrmacht 
crosses the crosses into the Soviet Union in support of that endeavor, right? And so from from the start, the question is, can you, in that context, can you meaningfully distinguish between the war and the genocide? And the answer that historians have given increasingly is no. There is no meaningful distinction between the war which is fought and the aims for which the war is fought, because that is ultimately that is ultimately the aim of the war. The aim of the war is to murder millions and millions of people, to starve, to work them to death. And they succeed, of course, right, to a degree. They... Um, capture millions and millions of Soviet POWs. You have these kind of utterly mind-boggling um, encirclement battles, especially in the first kind of months of the invasion. Um, and over three million Soviet POWs are ultimately murdered. They are starved, they die of disease, they work to death, they're transported to Germany to, you know, slave away in factories until they basically fall over dead. Um, and in doing so, they aid the war effort, right? I mean, that's what they are supposed to be doing. Um, and the best kind of account of that is by is by Christian Gerlach, who goes into kind of brutal detail. Adam Tooze does a really great job too in English, um, where just the destruction kind of goes down a similar route and the kind of, you know, relentless allocation of resources in pursuit of that kind of aim. So even if on the kind of granular level, sometimes the Wehrmacht might not locally be aware of what is going on behind the lines, which is the claim that they always made. And this is the claim most famously made by Erich von Manstein in his, um, in his autobiography, ultimately um, called Lost Victories. And you can already sense the kind of politics in, um, in that kind of endeavor is that, well, the Wehrmacht fought a war um, for its country and ultimately it was lost by Hitler because Hitler intervened as a kind of very poor military decision maker. If only the war had been left to the generals, they might have won. That is nonsense. Nobody seriously believes that. Um, and um, again, like if you if you want if you want a kind of comprehensive account of that in English, you can just read Adam Tooze. So there's a wonderful lecture online that he gives in the um, on the 10th anniversary of the publication of Wages of Destruction, um, which goes through that in detail, there's no chance that they win the war ever. Um, it's, as far as historians concerned, is kind of surprising that they got as close as they did um, to Moscow and to achieving some of these war aims. But, you know, they don't have the industrial resources. They have, they don't have the capacity um, but, you know, they, they do engage in it anyway. And part of the reason they engage in it, and here again, this question is to, to what degree is the war at all separable from, from racial ideology. Part of the reason that they believe that they can win, in spite of this kind of lack of industrial capacity, which they're very well aware of, the resource constraints, is because they believe in their own racial superiority. And, of course, they're drunk on, on victory, right? They're drunk on victory from France and from Poland, Um so even if on the granular level you can separate the actions of Wehrmacht units and say Waffen SS units or um, SD units, um, there is no question that the that the whole project of the war is intimately wound up with um, the project of racial um, hierarchy and and genocide. Right, and this is, I mean, it's it's really like you said, it's it's obvious, it's clear if you look at the start of the war and what they were publishing and, and arguing about what the war would look like in the east before any before any soldier even crossed into Soviet territory. It's obvious in the conduct of the war. I mean, it's you know, in, in a lot of ways, even the even the casualty figures, right? You know, uh, less than half a million Americans died in 
both in two fronts and, you know, 27 million Soviets died. Like it was just a, it was a war of extermination and, and the Wehrmacht is very complicit in that as, as you say, and for a while, there's not a whole lot of controversy about this among the allies, right? Like you have, um, for example, uh, I believe Dwight Eisenhower in 1944 says, you know, the German is a beast. God, I hate the German. Um, and as, as president, uh, he'll he'll take on a, a quite different approach, and so it's it's a pretty um, it's a pretty dramatic shift because right in like 1945, you you have a willingness to exact like quite a lot of um, I mean some people would argue it's victor's justice, some people would argue it's you know it's it's a it's fair justice you know for for the the, the war crimes committed, and so what. What happens here in this period of time between the collapse of the Nazi regime and the emergence of this this very famous, I think, clean clean Wehrmacht myth, which I said, you know, that, that example from Band of Brothers comes to me. Like, I'm sure I'm sure other people who have, you know, either are or have gone through kind of World War Two uh, buff phases will be familiar with this to some extent. Um, you know, there's the various heroes like you mentioned. Uh, von Manstein, there's Rommel, there's, um, you know, there's there's a bunch of these characters and they're very like depoliticized soldiers. And the analogy that's often made is with uh, with Confederate generals who are fighting for a, uh, an evil cause, but are seen as kind of gentlemen soldiers and geniuses on the battlefield. Because what happens basically is that the, the, the political logic here, and I'll let you get into way more detail on this, Jan, because I know this is, this is, like I said, what your bread and butter. Um, but the, the overall political logic is that we defeat the Nazis. Everyone agrees the Nazis are bad. But then all of a sudden, shoot, there's the Soviets right there in Germany as well. Huh, they're communists. And we realize quite quickly that we don't like them. We never really have. And, you know, the, the Cold War heats up as uh, you, know, you can hear your cheesy documentary voice saying that. But effectively, between 45 and 49, that's what happens. And so the you go from seeing these as seeing the German military as, you know, a, a tool of, of evil and something to be defeated to something that should be selectively rehabilitated, both reputationally and materially in terms of German rearmament, in order to then confront what is seen as the Soviet threat. And to do that, this myth becomes very important, right? I mean, there was there was in the Nuremberg trials, they were thinking about indicting the entire upper leadership, the general staff, as a criminal organization. Isn't that right? And that that didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's interesting to consider how that political logic very quickly shifts. I guess the point at which you have to start is the sense that World War Two was the good war, and that you know, I mean, this this too is such a trope of a lot of these films and and these cultural products that. Americans went to war to save Europe, to liberate Europe, to, you know, sometimes, you know, save the Jewish population of Europe. That's nonsense, right? It was, a, it was it, it's, it's to some degree disputed, but um, some historians have argued, and I think to a degree convincingly argued that um, there was a sense in which Jewish victimhood was downplayed because... Uh, America did not want to be seen to go to war to save Europe's Jews. That was not a thing that people thought might be popular. And part of that is, you know, America had its own, you know, kind of nascent fascist movement. There's the America First movement. I mean, you know, Henry Ford is not exactly a politically savory kind of character, right? Uh, this this exists in, yeah, in, it is the, in the United you know, States. The backbone of the arsenal of democracy, right? <laughs> so, yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. And I mean, in Britain, right, there is these, um, what's his number? Edward VI, the, the, right, the king who abdicates and uh, marries an American socialite and then does these kind of propaganda tours of Nazi Germany. I mean, there is a degree of sympathy um, across Europe, even at the point at which you would have thought people might know better. Um, but, but they don't. Um, and so they, they go to war at, at some point inevitably, but not, not for, you know, reasons that we might want to make our own necessarily. Um, and so I think that's the point of departure, right? At the very first instance, there's a lot of myth-making about World War II, but one myth is that it's the good war, that America goes to war to save the Jews or to liberate the concentration camps or whatever. That's not the reason America goes to war um, at all. And there's a wonderful new book that's out by Stephen Wertheim where he talks about, you know, part of the part of the endeavor in going to war is ultimately to um, to embrace American global hegemony. Right. That's part of what becomes clear very quickly. Um, the question then is, how do you get from there to the Cold War? Right. And I think this is an important starting point because it means that it, it in, in a way it narrows the gap. It's not to say that immediately Munstein and others are kind of characters that the Americans really love and would would be keen to embrace. But it narrows the, the gap to a degree. And then there's the question of the Soviets, right? So the Wehrmacht and the SS, to to a certain extent, frame the invasion of the Soviet Union as a crusade, right? It is a crusade of a Western country, Western civilization of, you know, a country that's dominated by, you know, and this, I have to be careful here with the air quotes, but they call it Asiatic or Judeo-Bolshevism, right? And that kind of language, that kind of project again, I think, is something that certain segments of the American ruling class are um, increasingly attuned to, right? It's something we, they're we should say, of. We should say the British as well, right? I mean, the British also, yes. with Churchill having directly intervened against the Bolsheviks in the Russian Civil War. So there's a lot of, there's bad blood that goes back here decades between a lot of the sort of Western liberal powers and and the, the Bolshevik, Bolshevik regime in the Soviet Union. Yes, of course. And I mean, you know, it is it is it is Stalin's Bolshevik regime, right? But it's or Stalin's um, Soviet um, regime. But it is also true that, you know, I mean, this this too has echoes today, right? Lend lease is um, so American provision of in particular heavy trucks and other kind of logistical um, equipment helps the Red Army break the back of the Wehrmacht, right? So, um, and to to just to just make clear how big that gulf is, right? Because one one of the one of the myths too that we have is the Wehrmacht as this kind of quintessential modern army, right? It's the tank army, it's the Blitzkrieg, it's moving fast. Um, that too is a is a lie, right? I think it's something like seven hundred and fifty thousand horses are part of the Wehrmacht's invading force of the Soviet Union. The primary logistics I think of about the Wehrmacht six is times, a horse drawn. I think about six times as many horses as trucks. Yeah, quite when they possibly. when they launch the invasion. Yeah. 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 The primary logistics of the Wehrmacht at the, throughout the war is a horse drawn cart and wagon, right? That's what it is. And the and the Soviets have heavy trucks. And some of those trucks are from domestic production and others are from Lendlease. But the point is the gap is enormous, right? Um and it's it's and this is what happens when you read you know diaries of these kind of wartime armored commanders on the Wehrmacht side you know they're constantly running out of fuel and they have no logistical train whatsoever and this too shows the kind of scale of the 
the kind of insane scale of the invasion, right? There was no way, really, that this was going to work in terms of logistics. There was absolutely no way. We think, right? Best of best of anyone's guess now, if you look at the plans that they had, there's no way this can work. And of course, again, the only way that they can keep going is to is to feed off the land, right? To starve the local civilian population. So again, the military and the kind of genocidal aspects of the war go hand in hand. There is it's very difficult to separate them. If your if your um, operations and your logistics depend on doing a genocide, like how do how do you separate those two things? Yeah. Yeah, but, you know, I think yeah you're, exactly. Yeah. I think you're right that it plays into this what's basically a, a very like racist myth that is very, very popular in, in the West as well. I mean, like I'm saying, I'm saying this as a somewhat uh, reformed, you know, world war two nerd kid of like, you know, watch every history channel documentary. And like you said, Hitler's mechanized blitzkrieg storms East, you know, mm. like you just, you can hear the, like the cheery, the cheesy narrator voice. You can see the, you know, the panzers rolling in. Uh, but like you said, you know, Way more. You never see the horses when they're talking about the Blitzkrieg. <laughs> uh, you know, you never yeah. see that at the height. I think at the height of mechanization, twenty percent of German units were were fully mechanized, and so like they they were always they were always without enough stuff, enough like heavy machinery, and it. it but it plays into this this racist myth that the Germans were a extremely competent, which is what the the generals like the you know the, the leaders like Paulus or von Manstein their their famous books, what they try to propagate with their books written after the war um they were they were mecha they were technologically sophisticated they were extremely competent they were extremely disciplined there's maybe a little bit more to the third one but the idea that the soviets are incompetent uh they are technologically backwards they have terrible leaders uh and there's just a lot of them though and so i've, I've seen yeah you know i've seen these reports and like a german you know german troops will say oh well we were the best soldiers you know in the world but it was like it was like a war elephant being overrun with ants right which like mm -hmm. you know there are huge lopsided you know very very lopsided battles in terms of uh the, the outcome like especially early on like you said with these big big encirclements we'll maybe link to a good uh, youtube video that shows you know some of these encirclements um and by the end of the war, like every kind of credible historian says, no, that's not true. Like the so the Red Army knew what it was doing. It was extremely effective at combined arms attacks. Um, you know, the, the German the German army obviously didn't collapse. Like you know, wasn't routed in 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 forty four. Like it might have been staged some counter offensives, but still, like the the Red Army knows what it's doing. It's very effective. It has good technology. It has good commanders. So on. Like. And so this idea that it was just the masses of numbers of the, the Eastern hordes over overwhelmed the kind of Christian, uh, you know, Western crusaders of the of the, the Germans, like it, it's like we end up with like a slightly more sanitized version of what is, in effect, an extremely like racist Nazi mm -hmm. myth that like they're this brave few crusaders overrun by the Eastern hordes. And we hear, oh, well, the, you know, the incompetent Red Army overwhelmed Hitler's mechanized troops. It's basically the same story. It's just told yeah. without the extremely racist edges. And so it's important to like take that apart. One, just for the sake of like facts and, and people knowing what's going on. And two, to understand how that myth becomes so important in the actual politics post-war. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think you're right. You know, it is that, I mean, in some ways, you know, it's the Nazi version of an older, right, kind of fear because ultimately it is a, it is a kind of modernized yellow peril kind of idea. 
right? It's the it's ultimately the same, right? What if the Western world were overwhelmed by these kind of yeah, quote unquote Asiatic hordes, right? Which is the which is the kind of language that they use. Um, yeah, I should be so clear I when I say that, that term. That's yeah. that's that's an air yeah. quote term. <laughs> <laughs> there there are a lot of there are a lot of air quote terms. Yeah, in this. yeah because you have to because you have to use the you know to you want to give the sense that um, you you want to give the 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 some sense of you know the terms that people actually used without making these terms your own, right? Because they are they are important. Um, it is important to kind of broadly speaking, no, right? Especially, I mean, there is um. You know, it's a wonderful book by an American historian called Paul Hanebrink, um, which you can maybe link to, which is about the myth of Judeo-Bolshevism um, and the kind of narrative around Judeo-Bolshevism, right? As like a, a concept against which then um, reactionary forces um, kind of coalesce in 20th century Europe. And that kind of stuff is so relevant now because ultimately, you know, what is what is cultural Marxism, right? If not a kind of updated argument, um, based on the same kind of old racial stereotypes, right, or racial kind of myths, um, but yeah, so you have these you have these Wehrmacht commanders in the Eastern Front who, you know, even even the battles you were describing, right, these kind of the battles of retreat in which um, the Wehrmacht doesn't rout but withdraws and holds off the kind of Soviet attacks, right? These are Manstein's lost victories, right? These yeah. kind of retreating battles, um, that's what he's talking about ultimately, and um, what happens is. It's a little bit unclear, but basically there is a way that some of these generals find their way into American captivity and from there manage to pitch to a receptive audience, I think, within the American military establishment, the idea that they know what's coming. They know that the coming war is with the Soviets and they fought the Soviets before. And if only, right, and this is where they begin this kind of campaign of exculpation, if only Hitler hadn't intervened, they would have beaten the Soviets. And so they have something to teach the Americans. They know what's coming. They know what's next, right? And that's the kind of way in which they pitch their knowledge. And of course, again, like here they begin, right, to separate. This is where this is kind of, in a way, where it starts at a higher level. They, be they begin to... Uh, distinguish between the war and the genocide because if you believe that the war and the genocide were inextricably linked as we have both argued so far um, then this argument cannot actually be sustained but if you if you think they can be separated as these men do and of course their freedom and to some extent their continued um, physical integrity depends on that separation right because ultimately if they couldn't make that argument if they were held responsible for genocide in the post-war period then they might lose their freedom or their life, right? Um, but in making that argument, on the one hand, they begin to create new roles for themselves. And on the other hand, of course, their um, their lives, to some extent, depend on it. Yeah, I mean, and we should be should be clear here, right? This is they're they're playing into what is emerging as as a like it's it's not uh, it's not just the supply of myths from the former Wehrmacht commanders. There's also a rising demand for this. I mean, famously on the British side, you have Winston Churchill uh, drawing up Operation Unthinkable, which calls for rearming the Wehrmacht and then attacking the Soviets, their former allies. Immediately, they obviously realize this is not going to work at all. It's never really discussed further. But the idea, like, there, there's this even even late in the war. And in the mid 40s, there's this idea that like, oh, well, what those Germans, if we could just get them on our side, we could fight the fight the Reds. And this becomes more and more politically um, 
politically tolerable um, and then actually just like just politically desirable for a while. I mean, there's this this book that uh, I have to thank Jan for recommending me um, called the, the Myth of the Eastern Front by Smelser and Davies. And so I, I'll just quote from that here because I, I think this is important um, with the with the kind of turning point. They say five years later, after the outbreak of the Korean War, it became clear to the Americans that a German fighting force of some kind would have to be revived for the eventuality that a hot war spread from Asia to Europe. U.S. military thinkers have been contemplating this eventuality since 1947, but now it took on a real urgency. Among large numbers of former German officers, however, there was a conviction that no future fighting force would have been possible without the rehabilitation of the Wehrmacht. So could you could you talk a little bit about some of these demands from the actual former Wehrmacht soldiers, um, often you know leaders in the military, who really insisted upon most mostly exonerating their comrades before they would participate in any kind of military that would then be used to confront the communist bloc, the emerging communist bloc at the time. Yeah, so um, basically what you get um, in the late 40s and early 1950s is a high-powered lobbying effort. So there is the sense that the German army would have to be reconstituted. So um, very briefly going back, the Wehrmacht is abolished immediately after the end of the war. This is the template for what happens in Iraq <laughs> after the American invasion when, um, you know, you get the, the you get the abolishment of the, the Iraqi army or disbandment of the Iraqi army and debathification. Um, so that's where, that's where that comes from. Um, they abolish the army. And um, even before that happens, even before the end of the war, even German officers in American captivity begin to lobby um, American decision makers. They get funding from various parts of um, of the American intelligence services. So the most notorious for this is the Organisation Gehlen, the um, the kind of incubator for the later Bundesnachrichtendienst, the Federal um, Foreign Intelligence Service, the BND, um, and they maintain these networks um, even in captivity and even beyond the disbandment of the of the army and they begin to lobby and ultimately the case they make is to say that you need soldiers you will need them to fight the soviets still the soviets at bay to potentially fight you know ultimately the wars of american empire right um and they say to they make clear they present a united front um that is contested. It's not. It's always difficult to say because there, you know, there are two and a half thousand generals in Germany after the war, right? There's or generals and admirals, I should say. Um, there's a lot of right because the Wehrmacht was enormous. There are a lot of people, so it's never. We're never talking about all of them. We are talking about kind of smallish groups, but we're talking about smallish groups have an outsized impact, and they ultimately argue that there will be absolutely no way that um, they will recommend that their men, you know, their, the men who fought alongside them or under them during the Second World War will put on uniforms again without that recommendation. And they will only give that recommendation if various political actors, A, sort out pensions, the pensions disputes are very important early on, and B, make the case that the Wehrmacht as a whole was not criminal, but that as a, on the whole, 
the German soldier fought bravely for his country and he did nothing wrong. And ultimately they are successful. They extract from both Konrad Adenauer and um, Dwight D. Eisenhower what in German are referred to as Ehrenerklärung, Declarations of the Honor of the German Soldier. Right, and famously with the, the Himmerod Memorandum, right? It's the Himmerod Dingschrift in, in German uh, from 1950, right? This was one of the, the most famous ones where they were actually, I believe, invited by Chancellor Adenauer, who was then only a year into his term or so. And then this this was seen as kind of one of the... Um, this was seen as a, a document about the the re uh, the, sorry the rearmament of Germany, um, and it really but it, it sort of demanded um, and and laid out some of these myths of the you know what became known as the clean Wehrmacht myth, right? Well, the the memorandum the memorandum. So what happens? So the reason it's called Himmerod is because there's a monastery at Himmerod in which um, in I think October 1950 on a couple of days a conference takes place with representatives from all of the former armed services. Um, but that memorandum is, even though it circulates among military elites, it is not public. But on the 23rd of January 1951, Dwight Eisenhower gives in front of the press a declaration of the honor of the German soldier. And in December 1952, Adenauer does the same in the Bundestag. And two weeks later, um, he his state secretary gets a letter from the highest ranking living um, general officer of the Waffen-SS to ask whether that declaration of the honor of the German soldier includes the Waffen-SS and the state secretary replies and he says, yes, I discussed with the chancellor whether that includes the Waffen-SS. He wants you to know that explicitly the declaration of the honor of the German soldier includes the Waffen-SS. So that kind of separation between the Waffen-SS and the Wehrmacht takes place a little bit later on. Um, very early on, certainly, there is no distinction that is made, certainly not by Adenauer. Um, yeah, so there are two there are two parallel tracks running, right? On the one hand, there is Brahmament, which is for the longest time a kind of covert effort. Um, and we can talk a little bit about the historiography maybe later on. Um, yeah, it's but there is also this kind of public effort at rehabilitation because, of course, it has to be public facing because... There are millions of men in Germany who once wore, you know, Feldgrau, right, the field gray of the of the Wehrmacht uniforms, um, who they want to communicate to that basically you are fine, you did nothing wrong, um, you fought bravely for your country and we acknowledge your sacrifice, and that is in a way, right, like it's part of the question of how do you reconstitute the state, and one of the ways that they do that is to to try and um, create a kind of consensus, right, so it's. It's difficult, it's difficult to see what the alternative would have been in a way, right? And because as, as a historian, you always work with implicit what if questions. And here, what happens is bad, but it's also not clear that they felt they had other options in a way, because the threat is implicit, right? And this is something that um, that came out in the last couple of years, there are, even in this early stage, officers who basically plot against the new state who say, well, if they won't acknowledge our honor and the fact that we did nothing wrong, we might have to take matters into our own hands, right? So it's a very kind of brinkmanship kind of exercise that leads to, at the heart of the foundation of the new state and its new armed forces, this kind of compromise around, you are not going to be accused of having done anything wrong. And of course, later on then, Individual people will become accused of having participated in the genocide in various ways, right? So, for instance, the 
um, the Auschwitz trial in Frankfurt, the Babiyar trials later on. So it does happen, but it is all very small scale. It is all aimed at the level of particular individuals, whereas this kind of grander reckoning never takes place. And in part, it never takes place because of that founding kind of consensus of the new state. Right. I mean, I, I get I get what you're saying about the sort of lack of alternatives from the perspective of if you're a German general, like obviously, you know, you'd rather get a pension than the news. Um, like fair play, uh, I guess. But I mean, I think I think where obviously the, the sort of none of this happens without the OK of, of the Western powers at this time. And so I think that's where. I mean, it, it, the the counterfactuals here go to the heart of sort of like these very these giant like who started the Cold War myths, really. Like, sorry, sorry, who, like who started the Cold War arguments? Um, because, yeah, once you have this underway, it's like, yeah, well, rearming the the German military if we if the Soviet threat is so great, well, of course, I mean, what are you going to do, right? But then the perceived threat from the Soviets wouldn't have been as great if they didn't start rearming the West German military in the first place. I mean, like, like I said, this, the Soviets just lose 27 million people, you know, estimates vary. That's one of the most, the most, the ones I've seen the most. And you fight that kind of war of annihilation of, you know, a country comes up to the, you know, the, the, the gates of Moscow famously in December, 1941, mm. and you beat them back. And then all of a sudden, a few years later, your former ally is then re-equipping those people who just tried to exterminate you. Like that, you know, you can understand why some of the escalation takes place. And obviously, you know, there's always there's a tit for tat here and there and everyone says it's the other person's fault. But like this, this can't be seen without this like broader Cold War narrative, uh, this Cold War atmosphere. Right. And it's and it's not you can't really disentangle the cause and the effect because you need to rearm the the Bundeswehr and you need to rehabilitate the Wehrmacht because there's the Cold War starting, but the Cold War is also starting in part because you're doing that. And so it's yeah. it gets almost impossible to separate these two things. And I think it's really a a world, you know, maybe it sounds grandiose, but like a world historical tragedy to to do this and like created this yeah. helped create such a just like wasteful and 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 silly geopolitical dynamic uh, in addition to the you know what shouldn't be considered a small issue but uh, you know relative to the threat of nuclear annihilation during the cold war but the what's still a major moral issue of like letting a lot of these guys off the hook i mean very very few people were held accountable for the the level of suffering and 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 violence that was committed especially on the eastern front yeah and of course this is exactly the argument that gets made right is how is germany going to so the argument for rearming germany is often one around on the one hand, kind of Cold War, you know, in, in German, um, <laughs> the early term that's used is the Westdeutsche Verteidigungsbeitrag, right? And it's a contribution to the defense of Western Europe, ultimately. And so rearmament is um, wound up with the question of the integration of Germany in various kinds of alliances, right? So early on, there is the question of the European defense community, again, like basically a European army, right? So you can see how relevant some of these questions are, because the other alternative, of course, is integration into NATO. Um, and for that, then again, you know, if Germany is going to be a sovereign state, right, um, not under occupation, it needs to be integrated into some kind of Western alliance because neutrality is not an option, realistically. There is a kind of small neutralist movement, but it flickers out. Um, then it needs to be integrated into 
into some kind of alliance. And in order for that to happen, it does need to have armed forces, right? Because what Adenauer, and this is the kind of this is the kind of political move that Adenauer makes, he says basically, well, we want to have some leverage and we only really have leverage if we have something to contribute. And the way we have something to contribute is if we have armed forces to contribute, men to contribute. Um, so again, these interests, they all play into one another, right? You have the American and British interests in kind of this nascent Cold War, you have the German general's interests, and you have the German political class's interests, right? So it is it is a kind of dynamic that, that has lots of moving parts. And that's why it's difficult to see an alternative. You know, it's difficult to see what else could have happened, because again, like these interests align in various ways. But you're right, most, most of the men who carried out, and of course, the overwhelmingly men who carried out genocide are never held accountable, right? And that leads you to where we can maybe make some transition to some part of the present that leads you to the fact that Germany as a state acknowledges some responsibility for the Holocaust, but no German will take responsibility, right, for their father, grandfather, great-grandfather having carried out genocide, Exactly. They're they're it's like it's like the world's biggest limited hangout. It's like is <laughs> you know, it's Yeah, and you get, you know, yeah, you get these kind of stories, right? If you if you ask Germans about this, right, they will say, Oh, you know, he was yes, yes, our grandfather, he was in the army, but you know, he didn't really want to, and maybe he was forced, and maybe he had low key links to the resistance, and maybe even my great grandmother was half Jewish herself, right? You get these. And do you know what the Soviet? Do you know what life was like on the Eastern Front for them? You know, like. Yeah, sure, right. You get all of this, and that's that. To me, it's it's really interesting, right? Because even in Germany, people talk about Germans and Nazis as though there was a meaningful distinction during the Nazi regime between these two. Yeah. Right. And it's not clear to me that there was, and it's not clear to me that if there was, people really have a conscious sense of that. Um, the other thing too, briefly about the Cold War is that of course, um, you know, you mentioned that there is the sense that maybe we can get the Germans to fight on the Western allied side. That of course is the great gamble of the plotters of 1944, right? So on the 20th of July in 1944, Tom Cruise, a kid, <laughs> um, Stauffenberg, right, tries to assassinate Hitler and the movement of the coup behind it, they have a foreign policy and the foreign policy hope at that point, very much a hope because it's not at all realistic really, is that what they will do is they will make a separate peace with the allies and they will join with the allies to fight the Soviets. That is the hope. Right. Um, and that kind of gets glossed over. And a lot of this, I mean, a lot gets glossed over when you look at the 20th of July and we can come back to that at some point. But, um, you know, a lot gets glossed over. But one of the things that does get glossed over, too, is the fact that they were not fundamentally opposed to the war of annihilation in the East. Indeed, many of them were to various degrees complicit. So, again, you know, even that because that that, too, there is a memorial to these to these plotters. Right. The Bundeswehr considers them to some degree foundational to the ethos of a German soldier who was opposed to national socialism. Um, but the moment you look at that in any kind of detail, it falls apart. Yeah, it's like this myth of the, it's a very peculiar sort of liberal infatuation with the the less evil, evil guy. I mean, they're sort of like, a, they're sort of like the Lincoln project of, of like 1940s in Germany. They're like, yeah, 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 yeah. We we want to do all this really bad stuff. We just don't like the guy who's in charge of doing the bad stuff now. And so if you'll join us, uh, we can 
we can do all the bad stuff together without the one guy we all agree is kind of gross. And so, yeah, it's well, here's the here's the thing. Right. So um, in the 90s, in 1998, 1999, Christian Gerlach publishes a chapter in a in an edited collection in which he documents the participation of the men of the 20th July in genocide and war crimes. And he is at that point a PhD student in Berlin. So that chapter, not that book as a whole, that chapter gets written up by Marion Gräfin Dönhoff, the publisher of Die Zeit, which of course is a kind of ever so slightly center-left weekly, and, and Richard von Weizsäcker, who is the former fe- president of the Federal Republic, who himself served as an officer in the 9th Infantry Regiment. And they basically say, and the title of this is wonderful, um, the title of this is Wieder die Selbstgerechtigkeit der Nachgeborenen, which translates to against the self-righteousness of those born after. And they basically say, look, you didn't know what it was like. Every, you had to give, Living under the fascist regime meant everyone was guilty. And so therefore, to point at the guilt of these people who gave their lives to try and quote-unquote free Germany, right, is actually self-righteousness of those people who were born too late to have to deal with these kind of moral imperatives, right, with these kind of moral quandaries. And that, to me, says so much about, like, post-war, you know, West German liberalism, um, that these two, you know, these two kind of greats of that political movement would come down so hard on a PhD student. Because, yeah, it, it doesn't tolerate dissent. But the Nazis right? were just victims of their time, really. Yeah. Oof. Yeah, that's... Uh... Well, that you could, you know, that, you, that it forced you into making decisions in that... Um, even if you participated in genocide, you could do so to a greater or lesser degree. And even if you did so to a lesser degree, it could ultimately be excused, right? That's the kind of point they're making. And that to me really requires like (laughs) further interrogation ultimately. Thanks so much to Jan Tottenberg for joining us. Again, if you'd like to hear the rest of Ted's interview with Jan, you can head over to patreon.com slash spaßbremse. And as always, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Tschüss!